You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Our guest today on Creativity in Play is Daryl Hammond, co-founder and leader of Kaboom, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that is saving play by making sure that there is a great place to play within walking distance of every child in America. Founded out of Daryl's apartment in 1996, Kaboom has raised $200 million, rallied a million volunteers, led a hands-on construction of 2,000 playgrounds, and inspired a movement for the child's right to play. Daryl Hammond, it's great to have you on Creativity and Play. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks. Well, you've been described as a spokesperson for the cause of play. And what is the cause of play? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, play is the work of children, but beyond just being the work of children, it really is something that happens throughout our lifetime. Uh, It brings joy, wonder, creativity, imagination, collections, collaboration, and it really is the, I think, some of the essence and backbone of humanity. It teaches us empathy, it builds our friendships, uh, builds community, and in some aspects we've lost a portion of that both in our children but also within our communities, thus for our adults. So we're trying to save play by building back the places um, for communities to congregate and certainly for kids to gather and play. And can well, you Darryl, describe? Well, you know, you have a great story about how you, you know, with your upbringing and then how you started Kaboom in your apartment. And uh just love if you could tell us a little bit about that story and how you came to do what you're doing today. Yeah, no, I do what I do because I grew up in a group home for 14 years, and it was volunteers who helped raise me. So certainly this is a way that I'm repaying that debt to them and a way of honoring what they were able to do for me. And I think Kaboom's always been about a dual-part mission, which is trying to use playgrounds to build community, to teach people to fight for something instead of against things, and at the same time to say, you know, what is the best type of play for community with community involvement is to have imaginative, creative places that gives them the essence of their childhood. Thank you. Can you say a little bit more about what some of some of the work around play looks like, both for children and adults? Because again, sometimes it, it's probably obvious what it looks like for children, but as adults, we don't always think about that that we're talking about us too. Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, you know, we would use the Alliance for Childhood's definition that, you know, play is, uh, you know, unstructured, child-directed, and child-initiated, and that's the purest form where, you know, they're given a stick or an empty box or an outdoor um, setting that's a nature or a creek or in front of their house or at a manufactured playground. And instead of the adult interacting um, 
with the play experience, the kid, the kids are um, doing whatever comes to mind um, to actually build, create, visualize, um, maybe sometimes sit in solidarity and just swing on a swing. Um, but that's the purest form. But we also recognize that you know play is uh, certainly a continuum and there are different types from this unstructured child directed child initiated play to team based sports and that what we need to do is not to say that it's an either or but to say that it's an and and um, if we're going to tackle the creativity um, deficit that uh, many people are arguing exists in our world in our community these days if we're going to tackle some of the health issues we need to uh, uh, look at both of these aspects um, as part of the solution, not just the intervention um, uh, or prevention of immediately getting kids in youth sports, um, but the intervention of building a foundation of happiness through child-directed play. Well, Darrell, I wonder what you have to say about how to bring communities together, since you've been doing this for so long, um, how to bring them together in play and to create through playful community? Well, you know, we believe that play begins in the making. Kevin Carroll from Rules of the Red Rubber Ball have certainly seen this in, in foreign countries, um, particularly Africa, about if you want to play a game of soccer, you actually have to make the soccer ball. And the, in the making of the soccer ball, you're already participating in play, not just the game itself or the sport itself. So much like that in building community, you know, we want to see the community and the kids come together to design, collaborate, fundraise, and actually in the process of the construction, um, build the space uh, that is called the playground, but that also has murals and outdoor classrooms and benches and arbors and gardens. Um, so that it's it's what we have learned through our experience is that um, people want a shared sense of history, a common experience. And through that shared sense of history and common experience, you better use it, maintain it, and people come out and experience it. You know, we have uh, an interesting anecdote from Hartford, Connecticut, where we built a playground at a housing authority. And at the same time, a playground was built with contractors at the same housing authority on a different property. The one at the different property had no common experience, no shared sense of history. Uh, nobody actually built it besides the contractors. And it hasn't been used very much or well-maintained. The one that the community residents used uh, help build uh, are the is the one that gets used and ironically um, um, uh, has a higher frequency and ad adaption of use and so what we're trying to do is to create two things a sense of community uh, and building on what's already there and a sense of place uh, the place happens to be called a playground that becomes a new town square for any type of community to gather together and congregate and through that congregation participate in communal experience of joy, wonder, and play. So it sounds like you see a connection between parents, grandparents, and communities knowing how to play and bringing their play to kids in the same through the same play, everybody gets to play them. <clears throat> yeah, no, abs absolutely. So you know what I, you know, play is in the making of how you build it. 
uh, and then it's in also on how you maintain it. And that you know a play a great play space is more than just for kids. It's multi generational and multi purpose. And that you know you're going to have activities for parents to be able to do, even if it's benches and shade, and grandparents as well. So that uh, like chess tables and game boards and things like that. So that a playground isn't solely singled out just for kids' activities, but for a, a larger purpose uh, for the whole community, and that all the uh, ages of a community have something to do at it. You know, you know, it's been said that this parents, this generation of parents, was the first generation that were really babysat not by a, a neighborhood child but by a television set. So as our lives became busier, um, when we were cooking dinners at night, we sat our kids in front of a television set so that we could go out and cook dinner. Um, now this same generation uh, of parents are the ones parenting, so their acceptance is very different than generations before, where now kids are getting, it's reported, up to seven and a half hours of screen time a day. Um, and uh, TV, video, computer, uh, and, you know, that's changing rapidly, you know, how kids interface with the, the world, each other, and it's, I think, going to have significant consequences on society in the future unless we start to reverse that and reverse it fast. When you talk about the, the generations involved in play and the differences in terms of, of TV today and and, and perhaps a live babysitter in the past. How are, how are playgrounds different today than they were when we adults were children? And and perhaps what's the same in them? Well, you know, I think that, um, you know, a playground connotates a specific image in people's minds today more so than it probably has in the past. Uh, in the past, a playground might be defined as your alley or your cul-de-sac or, the, you know, your backyard of whatever was out there. When I think, you know, people think today of a playground as the one that has slides and swings and posts and platforms, but it certainly should be more than that. And I think that we have to broaden our definition of a playground to start to include those things once again. Um, so, so the, I mean, the other thing with playgrounds is that we've de-risked them and that as a society we may not understand the difference between an accident and an injury and you know there was a recent case in west virginia where a child unfortunately broke their arm on a uh, swing after swinging and that the reaction was to pull out all 12 swing sets in that city's towns and mm -hmm. um, when it was purely an accident not necessarily um, something that could have been prevented by either better equipment better surfacing or anything else and so, um, you know, many people, many academics will argue that, you know, we're taking away this, this risk factor in kids and that uh, they have no consequences and that they don't dust themselves off, pick themselves up, and go back and do the same activity again, and that we're not building resiliency. And um, if our societal reaction is to rip out all the swing sets, which is almost one of the safest things that you can do on a playground, we're, you can see how we're limiting the opportunities for kids to play. You know, there, and, and I think that there is a difference between an accident and an injury. An injury is due to negligence. You know, if it's not properly maintained, that's one issue. But if in, a, in an accident somebody breaks their arm, as I did many times as a child, and as I got many stitches in my head as a child, and I know many of the other kids like me did as well, but we turned out okay. 
And so, you know, Philip Howard from um, Life Without Law- uh, Lawyers and Common Sense has started this national conversation about, you know, what type of risk-reward-benefit analysis needs to happen and what type of societal change needs to happen to enable parents and communities to accept a higher degree of risk because the reward is exponential than limiting kids' choice. And I think that um, we potentially could be limiting kids' choice more than we think, which we may not understand the consequences of that, of that um, for 10 or 15 years. Well, I've been doing a lot of I'm thinking and writing around the areas that you're talking about in terms of uh, concerns about safety. Adults are concerned about safety in urban America so they don't they keep their kids inside while they're at work because there's gang shootings and they're concerned their kids are going to get killed and then they're concerned about letting their kids run freely in the neighborhood who knows what would happen and they're concerned about them going out into the out into nature and and what can happen there what what unsafe things can happen so there's all that I hear parents and grandparents and adults talking all the time about those factors not to mention all our larger uh, issues after 9-11 and Homeland Security and worries about terrorists and so our culture is filled with this and so um, I, I wonder about your take on those larger cultural and uh, safety trust issues that we have and how that impacts play in urban settings and also out in nature, Sure, getting I mean, kids outdoors. Sure. I think that there's a lot of social science research that says the distance in which parents feel comfortable in allowing their kids roam is less than 30 feet, whereas a decade ago it was somewhere up to one to three miles. Um, so the consequences of that are that by inadvertently we keep our kids inside or in structured activities because we don't want them going more than 30 yards um, outside of our um, sight line. And um, uh, so I think, great, if that's indeed what it says, the question is, do we want to do something about that? And the way that we can do something about that is um, – maybe big societal change, but individual change. And it starts with individuals and and builds from individuals to individuals. Go back outside. You know, do what Mike Lanza has done in Playborhood in San Francisco area and, you know, set up a safe place right in in your front yard um, and start to get kids, neighborhood kids to congregate right there. And then build it out from concentric circles until there's a higher uh, number of people with eyes on the street and then with eyes on the street becomes a greater acceptance to allow your kids to roam more freely. But if the parents are going to be inside and the grandparents and the older siblings are going to be inside, the sense of safety, and I think it is a sense of safety, not a reality, is going to be less and less outside. So we got to get outside. Uh, we have to have more adults outside, and I think that that will allow for a, a, a greater acceptance of allowing kids to go further and further away. Great. I think you're right. It starts with individual change. But 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 that's not to say that I don't think that there needs to be a very concerted effort from a policy perspective around um, you know initiating efforts to allow more time and places to play. Uh, so if there's a deficit of play that exists um, and that deficit is broken out in two pieces 
time for kids to play and then places for them to play at you know from the time perspective you know we need to look at things like you know can we get recess and pe reinstated back into the school day if they're going to reauthorize um, the, the department of education's programs next year and i think we can and i think we need to um, and they're not one of the same uh, but who's out there speaking on behalf of this uh, we need to have more people showing up and talking about this. Uh, the second piece of it from places to play, you know, we need to look at, and I think uh, uh, fortunately this administration with the, the persistence of uh, Mrs. Obama and her Less Move campaign has really started a conversation at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, at the Department of Interior, uh, you know, at uh, trans the Department of Transportation, the Education Department, that is looking at what may be some of the subliminal barriers like sidewalks to schools or time in schools or joint service agreements um, so that if you do have facilities at a school, they can be opened up and used on weekends after school and during summer breaks instead of building brand new facilities in this resource-constrained environment. Uh, but I, I, do, I do know and recognize that unless we come to a conservative policy agenda, um, we're going to be still pushing the proverbial ball up a very steep hill. I think that it has to be both the grassroots movement of individual families changing their behaviors and a top-down approach where we look at some of these policy levers that need to be reevaluated um, from an access perspective, a quality perspective, um, to enable kids to play more frequently. Yes, and, and I can see that, you know, it's easier to uh, make some of these changes in suburbia, but not so easy in some of our urban areas. What do you see in, in uh, the Washington, D.C. urban areas and on the East Coast, for instance, in terms of play in urban settings? Uh, well, you know, I mean, you know, because I think that park and recreation sometimes when budgets start to be cut and facilities improvement, they're the first thing to go uh, and they're the last thing to come back. And as we've been in this prolonged economic headwinds, these difficult times, uh, we saw long before the, the general economy started to dip that park and recs was already being cut and slashed, both their infrastructure improvement dollars, but also their soft cost in programming people to be at these staffed facilities, like lifeguards at swimming pools, um, and there were no, you know, the, the swimming pools were old and outdated, so they, they were shut down, or if they were good, they couldn't staff them by paying a lifeguard to be there. And I think that they'll be the last thing that recovers or returns in a funding priority perspective when the economy um, hopefully does come back sooner rather than later. So the answer to that, I think, is, is parental organization is going back out in your front yard, backyard with, with lots of um, neighborhood kids um, and uh, living up to the spirit of um, 60 minutes of outdoor play every day. If it's either in organized um, parental activities or um, just in your front yard um, with other kids. Um, and it, I, I do think that it's a personal responsibility, um, not just um, um, somebody else's. And the more that we can do this, uh, we'll start to tip it. Can you say a little more concretely what some of the policies would look like, whether 
you've, you've mentioned some kind of at the national level, but I assume that there's also some, again, going back to the individual responsibility that, that we could look at in our own communities at a local level as well? well I think the, f the first thing from an access perspective is we should be looking at joint service agreements and that if schools do have recreational facilities like playgrounds and gyms, uh, it's unfortunately the best practice in many instances that you lock the doors and the gates at the end of the school day and um, nobody gets to use those facilities. Uh, we need to open up those facilities after school, on weekends, and during summer breaks instead of trying to build new um, facilities. Uh, it's going to cost more to uh, build a new facility than it is to open up a current facility and then make sure that it's staffed. So I would encourage everybody to look at your local policies towards joint service agreements. I think the second thing we need to look at is you know we we need to understand what the state of play is in every community in the country and anecdotally I think we understand it but um, you know Kaboom will be coming out with an iPhone and an Android application that allows communities to map their state of play um, using uh, this technology that if you're at the playground take a photo of it and make a rating of it and then. Um, we'll be able to then mash that up against other information like county health statistics, uh, race, population, and income, and then be able to understand is the access to play opportunities and the quality of play opportunities equal for all kids everywhere? And if it's not, what are the things that's necessary or needed to be done to move from the current state of position to the more ideal state of position? So if we map this, if you map the state of play, um, the next thing is to, with our Playful City USA program, is to have mayoral and business and neighborhood support to, to devise a plan that's acceptable for everybody that you recognize may not get to in one year, but if you write it down, you can start to work towards progress and hold yourself accountable um, uh, from where you're at to where you want to be and get yourself on a roadmap to be there. Um, and you know what? What works for one place may not work for another place, but what does work is partnerships and citizen action. And what we're really calling for is for people to understand where they're currently at and then to devise a plan for where you want to be. So, uh, Daryl, I wonder, you know, at the Kaboom office, because I've talked to a lot of these folks, um, playful folk, I wonder what the some of the play that happens at the office. How how does play integrate itself into the Kaboom workday? <laughs> well, I think we may be one of the only offices in the country that in our lobby we actually have our Imagination Playground playground equipment in there. We have a tire swing that we constantly see people um, sitting on, hanging out for their coffee break or their lunch or just chatting. Um, uh, we have a very open office space um, that's very communal so that people are constantly walking up and down the halls. You know, we have, an, we have a, 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 a monthly cultural captain celebration that's done in a joyful, playful way. So, yes, we practice what we preach in as much as um, we're about um, serious fun. And we have to both be serious in how we do what we do to get some work accomplished, but it can be done in a playful and fun way. And, um, um, you know, the, the, the organization here and the people that we hire can do both of those things, that if you're serious all the time and not playful, you won't fit in here or last very long. And if you're all playful and can't be very serious, you're not going to last here long either. But 
you know, our brand is our people. I think we have some of the best employees uh, in the in the in the country doing miraculous work in a very tough economic environment, and we're fortunate that they continue to uh, build on the culture that we've established and even make it better than what I ever envisioned it would be 14 years ago. I, I think your description of the seriousness and the the fun part is such a key part of what links all of this to the creativity topic. My mentor, Bernice Bleedorn, used to talk all the time about this paradox of being playful and serious at the same time and, and recognizing and developing that capacity in ourselves. And so it's great to hear you describe that. And it, it made me wonder if, if Kaboom is also doing work with other um, professional uh, people and, and corporate workplaces to help them sort of tap into their playful abilities and their creativity in, a, in corporate settings. You know, our playground builds are a great opportunity for us to do this. Uh, one of the whimsical things that we do is have our build captains dress up and build captain flair, um, which <laughs> if you take a look at our website, you'll see, you know, some adults in uh, uh, hula hoops and skirts and funny, funky hats, and initially they're skeptical, but when they put it on, they're almost transformed. But we, that, that's as much as that we do. There are other organizations like Instant Recess uh, and Playworks, uh, the Alliance for Childhood that I think are working in the corporate workplace to bring about this sense of spon both spontaneous fun, but also things that become a habit for people so that it's not seen as a luxury, but it's actually seen as a necessity and that our workplace, our workplaces become the type of playful environments that we want our schools to be as well. Are you seeing connections uh, earlier when you were talking about um, the connection with nature and outdoors? Are, are you collaborating with people that are doing work around local food and agriculture issues to engage kids in that particular work as it sort of overlaps with your bigger message of, yeah, of getting most people certain. to play outdoors? Yeah, most certainly. In every playground that we build, we try to build some sort of um, garden aspect of it. Um, if it's not a production garden, at least it's a demonstration garden that uh, maybe the students can sell at a farmer's market, some of the things uh, a farmer's market stand at their school or facility. Uh, we, you know, we think that it's an important component of a three-legged approach, that nutrition, physical activity, and play are equally as important to solving both the creativity crisis and the physical activity and obesity crisis that our country is facing. It's not one um, or the other. It's got to be all three simultaneously, and that nutrition folks, in our opinion, need to be talking about play and physical activity, which is why we talk about uh, nutrition and physical activity as part of uh, moving play forward faster. Well, Daryl, also you were talking a bit about technology and um, apps and things like that, and I know that um, some of the folks at Kaboom are, work, are working diligently on creating different kinds of technology and play. And I wonder about what you have to say about a balance um, for kids and families about um, that balance between TV, computer, and being outdoors for an hour per day playing. Well, yeah, no, I think that it's a, you know, it's, you know, if we actually recognize that it's a necessity, not a luxury, we're going to start to build better habits um, about how, you know, our 
we as parents and communities respond to this. And the, the habits become uh, family time, family interaction, child-to-child -child interaction. There is certainly a difference between indoor play and outdoor play. Um, you know, there's been some correlation between the rise in bullying and the decrease in kids' playtime because of the socialization that may not be happening. So I, I think we are reaching a, a tipping point that we recognize that play is the work of children. They're not getting enough of it. Um, how do we get them to have more and better play opportunities that will build their brains and their bodies for a lifetime of joy, happiness, and success? And um, it does start, though, in your own home, um, and you doing it and you practicing it, and for other people to then be able to emulate and, and replicate what you're doing as well. Yes, because I hear a lot of parents telling me they don't know how to play themselves, they're bored with playing with their children, and which is clearly impacting family and community. Most certainly, and Stuart Brown, you know, who wrote the book on, on play, has been the biggest advocate and my mentor on making me think about that adults are either the uh, tipping point that enables kids to be more playful or the barrier that prevents them because of their own um, habits and patterns. Daryl, thanks so much for sharing this important message with us about the importance of play and creativity and life in general. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for uh, doing this. It's an important topic, and we need to um, increase the frequency and intensity of it. Yes, and I'd just like to ask one last question in thanking you for participating, Daryl. I wonder how you play. What's your favorite ways to play? Uh, I live on. I, I live in Rock Creek Park in Washington D.C. and I'm very frequently out there uh, taking long, peaceful hikes either with my wife or by myself. Great, thank you. Thank you so much. Daryl Hammond is the CEO and co-founder of Kaboom. You can listen to this show again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you for joining us.